0: In psychologist John Johnson's article, What Mythology Reveals About the Mind, he mentions a fascinating class he took in university on comparative literature. In thinking about the class, he writes, one of the most surprising revelations for me was a required reading of David Lemmings' mythology, Voyage of the Hero. In it, he documents a degree of similarity across religious stories and myths from around the world. What got me thinking about that mythology course was an Easter service I attended with my family last Sunday. The pastor's sermon naturally focused on the resurrection of Jesus and emphasized how this was a unique story. Clearly, he, the pastor, had not read David Lemming or Joseph Campbell, whose work was the major source of Lemming's book. In the chapter on resurrection and rebirth, Jesus shares space with Heracles, Dionysus, Hyacinth, Adonis, and Aphrodite, Telepinu, Amaterasu, Susano, Buddha, Osiris, and Isis, Hainuel, the corn mother, Kutoyish, the bear man, Atis, Wanjiru, Kuulu, and Kotzakolatu. What I found particularly uncanny was that even the manner of Jesus' death was not unique if we recognize the cross as a symbol for a tree. Atis, a Phrygian Roman god who was said to be born of a virgin on December 25, was crucified on a tree and resurrected 3 days later on March 25. The Egyptian god Osiris was murdered by his brother Seth. Osiris's wife and sister, Isis, placed the pieces into a tree and resurrected him. The Norse god Odin engulfed in self-sacrifice by hanging himself on the great tree Yggdrasil and stabbed himself with a spear. This sacrifice was said to give him access to the powers and secrets of the runic alphabet. However, the similarities of various mythologies with the truth of the Bible can be traced to Satan's deception and desire to deceive the peoples of the world. It can also be traced to the incident in the Tower of Babel described in the book of Genesis. Sadly, many believe that the Bible is a book of myths similar to other myths. And even Christians have bought into the notion that the book of Genesis is a myth, specifically chapters 1 to 11. A prominent theologian and apologist, when asked what percentage of the first 11 chapters of the Bible is literal history, replied that Genesis chapter 1 to 11 is a mytho-historical account, meaning that there are some mythological elements in these chapters. However, the danger of this answer and this thought is that if the first 11 chapters of the Bible is fiction or myth, then why stop at only the first 11 chapters? Why can't Exodus, Joshua, Job, Daniel, Jonah, and even the Gospels and the stories of Jesus be myth and a work of fiction? You see, my friends, it is a slippery slope when one takes these chapters of Genesis as containing myths and falsehoods. But when we read Genesis chapters 1 to 11, it does mention about a talking snake. Cain's curse mark, giants called a Nephilim, a worldwide catastrophic flood, an ark or boat that had two of every kind of animals, and a tower that caused confusion when languages first appeared. It makes you wonder if the Genesis account is really true or not. So it's important to study these chapters to see what the Bible actually says and teaches and what life lessons they have for us today. And so we begin our new sermon series titled, When Giants Walk the Earth in reference to the literal giants and the giants of the faith mentioned in Genesis chapters 1 to 11. And so, if you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, as we begin our study in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3. I read now Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, in these first words of the Bible, we are told of how the world and the universe were created by the omnipotent, sovereign, triune God. If we believe the Bible to be inerrant in all that it says about everything, because it is inspired by God, and take the Bible literally, then for the Christian, there should be no doubt of how everything began. Everything started and was created and formed by God. Now I'm well aware. That there's another belief for how life came to be called the theory of evolution, which proposes that God did not create the universe, but that matter came into existence when there was a so-called big bang of matters, and the universe was formed through the evolutionary process. But this theory defies logic, because how can something come out of nothing without a first cause? If the universe, as we know it, came to existence through the big bang… Where did the matter come from that collided into each other to cause the bang? Scientists who hold to this theory don't have an answer, although many of them have fanciful guesses and conjectures which takes faith to believe in. For example, Ethan Siegel, who has a Ph.D. in astrophysics and is an award-winning author and science communicator teaching physics and astronomy at various universities, writes in his article, How did matter in our universe arise from nothing, these words? When you look out at the vastness of the universe, at the planets, stars, galaxies, and all there is out there, one obvious question screams for an explanation. Why is there something instead of nothing? The problem gets even worse when you consider the laws of physics governing our universe, which appears to be completely symmetric between matter and antimatter. Yet as we look at what's out there, we find out that all the stars and galaxies we see are made 100% of matter, with scarcely any antimatter at all. Clearly, we exist, as do the stars and galaxies we see. So something must have created more matter than antimatter, making the universe we know possible. But how did it happen? It's one of the universe's greatest mysteries, but one that we're closer than ever to solving it seems like an impossibility. On one hand, there is no known way, given the particles and their interactions in the universe, to make more matter than antimatter. On the other hand, everything we see is definitely made of matter and not antimatter. Here's how we know. And then Dr. Siegel in his article goes into a lot of scientific hypotheses and conjectures and even mathematical permutations trying to explore and explain the probability and possibility of how matter came into existence from nothing. And then he comes to this conclusion. The fact that we exist and are made of matter is indisputable. The question of why our universe contains something, matter, instead of nothing from an equal mix of matter and antimatter is one that must have an answer. This century, Advances in precision, electroweak testing, collider technology, and experiments probing particle physics beyond the standard model may reveal exactly how it happened. And when it does, one of the greatest mysteries of all of existence will finally have a solution. Simply put, Dr. Siegel has no idea how the matter in the Big Bang came into existence. He has no idea how something came from nothing, but is ever so hopeful that science will one day answer it. My friends, those who advocate for the Big Bang theory of evolution with regards to the origin of life and matter simply do not know what happened. Even if they are scientists with multiple doctorates, they do not know and are only guessing because they were not there when the universe was formed. And it is impossible to repeat the conditions of nothing and then having something you see, science says that everything has to be observable and repeatable to prove a theory. And that's why evolution, for the origin of life, is still but a theory, because the scientific method cannot be used to prove the origin of life. But the answer is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. God created the universe and everything in it. He spoke, and creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing happened. Let me just say that one can be a scientist and a believer of science, and also hold to creationism, which says that the world was created by God. Science and the biblical account of the creation of the world are not mutually exclusive. However, the world wants us to think otherwise. Don't be fooled into thinking that science and the Bible are not compatible or mutually exclusive. The most basic issue is who or what is the initiator of the origin of life and the origins of the universe. One view says that it is God. And the other position is that nothing created something, and then two nothings hit each other by chance to create something. If you are not yet settled on this important issue, as thinking people with the brain, you, my friends, have to decide which is most believable and most plausible and logical. You and I have to have a position on what created the universe and who created life. Now, what are the practical implications of this for our life? Well, one implication is that if God created everything, then as the Creator, He alone defines how things are to be. He gets to define how things operate. He gets to set the rules, and it is His definition of right or wrong, what is holy and what is not that is in effect. Life is not a free-for-all, then, for how you think you want it to be, or what you feel should be true or not, or what you desire for how things should operate. The world operates And its moral basis is on how God has defined it to be if He created the heavens and the earth. For example, if you open a shop or start a business, you can define what you sell. You can set the price of your own product. You can even decide whom to serve and whom to refuse service to. If you open an amusement park, let's say, you get to set the price of admission. You define the hours that it is open. You set the rules inside and determine who gets in or not. I hope you see my point. If we believe that God created the universe, which He did, He is therefore in control of everything and gets to define everything. Now, you and I may not like it and even get angry about this setup, but it is how it is. That's why unbelievers and atheists don't want to subscribe that God created the universe because the implications affect who has control of their lives. And here's the first principle I want to draw out, biblical principle number one. As the creator of the universe, God defines how the world operates, including what is right and what is normal. As the creator of the universe, God defines how the world operates, including what is right and what is normal. That's why, my friends, if we believe in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and acknowledge that God did indeed create the heavens and the earth, that He is the creator of the universe then His rules apply. What He defines as right and wrong is what we need to define as right and wrong. What He defines as normal and abnormal is how we need to define as what is normal and abnormal. The implications are great based on who we believe created the universe. Look at him now at verse 2. "'The earth was without form and void, "'and darkness was on the face of the deep, "'and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters.' While verse 1 is a summary statement of the process of creation, verse 2 seems to picture the condition of the world during the process of creation. Now, there is no gap of time between verses 1 and 2, as those who advocate for the gap theory believe. This is a view advocated by some Christians, which you'll find on the internet. The Hebrew grammar and syntax simply do not support this view, which advocates that it was a pre-Adamic race of people which fell when Lucifer rebelled. And thus, God destroyed them and the dinosaurs and started over again, and that supposedly explains the fossil records. But the Bible is clear that there was no pre-Adamic race of people. The fossil records can be explained without the gap theory, and we'll talk more about the fossil records in latter weeks. What is important to note in this verse is that through the process of creation, which will be described in detail in verses 3 to 31, God brings light. Form and order to his creation. Now look at verses 3 to 5 with me. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. God created light for the earth, but we're not told where the light source comes from, but simply that there was light. Darkness was not created but it is the absence of light. Notice in verse 4 that God created light and saw that it was good. Now the question is, good for whom? Well, it was a good creation in the eyes of God. But it was also good for mankind, whom He would soon create to populate the earth. We will see that everything God creates was for the good of mankind. Imagine the love of God for us, that He would think of what is good for us even before we were created. How sad later on, that Adam and Eve and mankind in general today would continue to wonder if what God had created and the order and the rules He instituted for us was good for us or not. The phrase, the evening and the morning were the first day, seemingly points to a literal 24-hour day. And the normal use of the Hebrew word yom for day in the context of this syntax also points to a literal 24-hour day. It is my position that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days and that the earth is still relatively young, which has scientific evidence to back up this claim as opposed to the view that the earth is billions of years old. There are many well-respected scientists that have studied the biblical account of creation and compared it to proven scientific evidences and concluded that they do not contradict each other. And yet, why then does the scientific community continue to look down on the biblical account of creation and see that those who hold to this position are simply religious fanatics who close their eyes to science and reject science? This is simply a false assertion. As a Christian who has a science background, I believe in the biblical account of creation, and I also believe in science. What it all comes down to oftentimes is to presumptions and biased beliefs, about what one believes to be true. Does one believe God's Word is inerrant and that God, who alone was there at creation, can authoritatively and properly speak about His own creation? Or does one believe the theories of the origin of life held by those in the scientific community who were not there at the beginning of the universe and are only making guesses of how life began and how the universe was formed, of which no theories have yet to be proven to be true even until today? My friends, both take faith to believe in. While some say it takes faith to believe in the biblical account of creation, nevertheless, it also takes great faith to believe in the theory of evolution as it relates to the origin of life. Don't be fooled into thinking that evolution has already been proven and that creationism has not. Science today has yet to prove the theory of evolution. I also want to mention another thing. Christians who doubt the biblical account of creation have to ask themselves this question. Can the omnipotent, sovereign God, whom we say is all-powerful and can do the impossible, be able to do miraculous works, like create the universe out of nothing, and do it in six literal 24-hour days? Can He cut through the very laws of nature which He Himself made? Is the supernatural God not bound by natural law? Because if the answer is yes, then He can do as what is stated in Genesis chapter 1. God is not bound by the natural law which He Himself has set in place here on earth. And listen carefully. He doesn't have to explain how He does it because quite frankly, it is unexplainable by virtue of the fact that it is a miracle. Creation is a miracle of God and no one can fully explain miracles. This is how the omnipotent God is able to have the sun stand still in Joshua, how He's able to turn water into wine how He can multiply five loaves of bread and two fish to feed thousands, how He can rise from the dead. You see, what we believe about the God of creation affects what we believe about God and what He can do for us and if He can save us or not. That's why how you view the God of Genesis often has a deep and spiritual implication in what you believe about God and what He can do. Can I just say I was a deep skeptic of the biblical account of creation. As an engineer and a mathematician who loved astronomy and all things science, reading scientists after scientists talking about the theory of evolution for the origin of life and the theory of evolution for the creation of the universe as if it's proven science, I really believed them until I began to do my own research and realized that most all of their conclusions were conjectures and assumptions that had yet to be fully proven. I came to realize that there was another perspective of looking at the very same scientific facts and data to come to the conclusion that biblical creation is plausible and true. But please don't take my word for it. You also have to do your own research so that you can have your own personal conviction and scientific understanding to hold that the biblical account of creation is true and plausible. Organizations like the Institute of Creation Research and Answers in Genesis have a great wealth of information that you may want to look into. Now let's get back to God's creation on day 2 and 3 in verses 6 to 10. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters He called seas, and God saw that it was good. So on day two we see that God separated the waters of the earth so that some of the waters was in the atmosphere and the other waters remained on earth. And on day three, God pulled together all the waters on earth in different locations and called them seas and made dry land appear. With this dry land available and visible, it was now inhabitable for mankind who had not yet been created. Notice again in verse 10 that God saw that it was good. Again, good for whom? Good in His eyes and good for mankind. You see, God created the beauty of the dry lands of earth for man to live on, and it would be good for mankind. Verses 11 to 13, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. While God created all types of vegetation and trees on the third day, why are only herbs and fruit trees mentioned? Because these are the vegetation that mankind can eat. Again, the emphasis is for us to see God's great love and care for mankind, that He would make all types of fruits and a wide variety of herbs for us to eat. Think about this. You know, God could have created only one type of fruit, let's say the apple, for us to eat every day. Think about eating only apples for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the rest of our lives. How boring it would be. But instead, in His love for us, He created oranges, mangoes, peaches, pears, blueberries, strawberries, dragon fruit, and I guess even durian, so that when mankind was created on day six, a buffet of food awaited Him. That is the love and the care of God. Keep this in mind when we get to chapter 3. And there's a fruit tree that was made that was off-limits to Adam and Eve. Interestingly enough, we only focus on what we cannot have instead of focusing on all that we can have. Look at verses 14 to 19 with me. Then God said, Let there be light in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Notice that on the fourth day, God created the celestial bodies of the universe, including the sun and the moon. For what purpose? Well, the Bible tells us for the demarcation of day and night and for the declaration of God's glory and majesty. Verse 14 indicates that another of its primary purposes was for the telling of time and noting the seasons. And verse 15 says that it was to be the source of light for earth also note that in verse 16, the author is using the language of appearance very common in the Old Testament. For we know that the moon simply reflects the light of the sun. This is not the Bible making a scientific assertion, as we also use terms like sunrise and sunset, which is the language of appearance, knowing it is the earth that rotates around the sun, and yet we are not accused of speaking falsehoods or lying. And again, we see that phrase, and God saw that it was good. Good for whom? Good in terms of God's perfect creation, but also good for mankind to enjoy and use. You see, for centuries before the invention of the watch, compass, or telescope, mankind relied on the celestial bodies of the universe to tell time and point direction, whether it be with sundials or navigating the seas with a sexton. This is a reminder that the celestial bodies of the universe are not to be worshipped, as many pagans do, but they are created by God to give light to the earth and to tell time and to declare His majesty and glory. As a side note, that's why I personally believe that there are no other humanoid-type creatures, so-called aliens, that live on other planets in outer space. Can God create them? Sure He can. But these verses in Genesis that speak to the purpose of the creation of the celestial bodies in the universe seem to nix the idea of aliens on other planets. While the Bible clearly teaches about angels and demons that do exist in a different realm, it doesn't talk about life on other planets. But that's a different subject for a different time. But what I want us to focus on and think about is how a good, loving, and caring God would create the beautiful, vast universe we have simply for mankind on earth to tell time and have light Almost everything in creation is for man to enjoy and to be helped so we can in turn glorify and praise Him. Now pulling it all together, we have our second biblical principle, number two. God evidences His love and care for us in the creation of a world that is for the good of mankind. God evidences His love and care for us in the creation of a world that is for the good of mankind. My friends, God's goodness, love, and care is very evident in His creation. So the next time you enjoy the beauty of a sunset or enjoy a day at the beach or hiking in the mountains or enjoying delicious food, take time to stop and thank God for His goodness, love, and care as seen through His creation for undeserving people like you and me. Because before even mankind stepped foot on earth and was created, God already prepared everything for us to enjoy immediately. God thought of everything we would need and created it for us, for our good. It wasn't because we earned it. It was because of His grace and love. Just meditate on this wonderful thought that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmaments show forth His handiwork because what He created was for us because of His love and care and by His grace. Look with me at verses 20 to 23. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day." The Bible tells us on the fifth day, God made all the living creatures of the sky and of the sea. These animals were majestic, intricate, and beautiful, both big and small, from the giant pterodactyls to the small sparrows of the air, from the tiny seahorses to the giant megalodons of the sea. Notice the phrase, according to their kind, which indicates that these animals did not evolve, but were created just as they are as separated species. And that's why in the evolutionist charts and graphs of a phylogenetic tree, which depicts the line of supposed evolutionary movement of different species and organisms from a common ancestor, it's often with a dotted line. Why? Because that dotted line indicates that they're looking for the so-called missing link of a transitional species form that, for example, gets us from an amoeba to a tiger, It's dotted because it has yet to be found, and it will never be found because the Bible tells us God created animals in its own kind just as they are. Sadly, in books and movies like Jurassic Park, they treat it as if it's conventional wisdom, that these evolutionary forms have been discovered, that dinosaurs evolved into today's birds. But the question is, where are these transitional forms in the fossil records? We're still looking for them, they have never even found just one. The Bible is very clear. God created birds as birds, sea creatures as sea creatures from the very beginning, and they remain so until today. But let me just note that that doesn't mean that God created all the types of dogs on the first day of creation. He simply created dogs. We don't know what they look like. There can be crossbreedings today to create unique dogs, but this can only happen, as scientists tell us, within the same species group. You can't breed dogs with eagles to get flying dogs. Now, without getting into the nuances of science, when God created animals according to their kind, that doesn't preclude different types of the same kind through genetic variations, adaptations, and selections through the mixing of dominant and recessive genes. But these varieties of animals still remain in the same species grouping and do not evolve into other species or life forms look with me at verses 24 and 25. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. The Bible tells us on the sixth day, God created all the living creatures of the land, including the mighty T-Rex, from the Stegosaurus to the lions, elephants, dogs, cats, and including insects and other creatures you may not like. But in the eyes of God, the Bible tells us it was all good and part of the complex ecosystem He alone created that works perfectly. And it is an ecosystem we're still studying and trying to fully understand today, but the more we understand it, the more we realize how perfect it is. Notice again that God... Looked at His creation and and said that it was good. Now, you may be reading this and you want to say, Lord, you mean everything that creeps on the earth is part of your perfect creation plan, created for the benefit of mankind? But what about cockroaches? You know, many of you know that I don't like cockroaches and am deadly afraid of them. The screams you hear from my house is me encountering one of them. And if the screams are especially loud, then I've encountered the flying variety." I've openly wondered why God would create cockroaches, and Lord, why over 4,000 different types of them. I prayed many times when I encounter them that the Lord would annihilate every single one of them from the face of this earth. Of what value are cockroaches other than to cause fear and panic in my life? Well, research has shown us that roaches are not only vital in providing an essential link in the animal food chain. But as they crawl through flowers seeking food, they also transport pollen and thus help with plant reproduction. Most roaches feed on decaying organic matter, which releases much needed nitrogen through their excrement in the soil. Without roaches, forests would suffer because cockroaches live and thrive in areas where the filth would cause illness in other organisms. Research scientists are looking for possible human application of the roaches' natural antibiotics, which can help the body fight straph infections, including MRSA, which is resistant to traditional antibiotics. Since the cockroach's legs are highly efficient, scientists and researchers have studied its form and function as they develop prosthetic limbs for the benefits of those who have lost limbs, including soldiers returning from war. The roach's exoskeleton and wings are also inspiring robot designs. So while I still hate cockroaches, knowing these facts, I can't help but appreciate God's amazing handiwork of creation. And while I no longer pray for their total extermination, I just pray I don't ever encounter a flying one in a dark room. Look with me at verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In verse 26, we see that the triune God decides to create human beings, but created mankind as distinct from any of us other creations. Men and women were and are created in the image of God. That means humans are unique creations that did not evolve from any other animals, but uniquely crafted and made in the image of God. Now, without getting into the LGBTQ plus debates in our culture today, which have been addressed in a different message, please note the two sexes or genders God created for mankind in the perfection of His creation before mankind fell into sin. There is male and there is female, and that's it. So in God's original creation for mankind, there are but two genders. We will look at the creation of Adam and Eve, the first humans created in detail next week. But here we note that God commands that they go forth and multiply. Also, mankind was charged to cultivate and manage the earth and have dominion over all the animals of the earth. This shows that the worth of a human being is much more than the worth of an animal of any type. Of course, we are to treat animals well, but not to the extent of placing equal or greater value on animals than that of human beings. In God's order of creation in terms of significance and importance, Mankind was put on top. As we already talked about, the creation of the world not only glorified God, but was to bless man by God's grace. Therefore, we're not to worship any animals, trees, wood carvings, objects made with material things, or celestial bodies as gods. For mankind is created in greater importance over all of these things, and why would we worship something that is of lesser value?" We are to worship the one who created all of these things, the one true God, and He alone we should worship. Worshiping objects made from materials in the natural world or worshiping animals or heavenly bodies created by God for man's dominion and help is not part of God's plan. There is no command here to do so. The only command from God for man in relation to the world He created is to manage it well, having hierarchy over the created things of the world. Also, I just want to point out that seemingly all things in God's original creation were created with the appearance of age. Trees were created with rings in its trunk. Plants already had seeds in them. Planets were fully formed. Light from stars millions of light years away were already visible on the earth. Sea, air, and land animals were created fully grown and ready to breed. And Adam and Eve were created as fully grown human beings. This realization and truth helps answer the question of why the earth is not as old as you may think. At the creation of the world, there was already the appearance of age. Look with me now at verses 29 to 31. And God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields a seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. What you have here is that God provided food from the herbs and the fruit trees he had created for mankind to eat, and even food for all the animals to eat. You see, before Adam's fall and sin and death entered the world, everyone and every animal was an herbivore, meaning humans and animals alike, only ate fruits and vegetables, and did not eat meat. Of course, all that changed after the fall, and we could eat meat. But then there's a question that's often asked of me. If God created every animal to be a plant eater, why did He make them with razor-sharp teeth, or at least some of them with razor-sharp teeth? Well, we don't know for sure. We have to understand that some fruits, plants, and trees require a very sharp object to open. Think of the coconut or a very thick tree bark. So having sharp teeth doesn't necessarily mean one is carnivorous. God could have created animals with sharp teeth to be able to eat certain fruits and plants. Another possible reason is that God knew the fall would happen, so He created animals with sharp teeth, but they were not used to kill until after the fall. Another possible reason is that there were some genetic changes in animals, which Genesis chapter 3 talks about. But whatever the case in God's original creation, before the fall, everything He created was perfect in every way. And as He ended these six days of creation, He looked at all of it, all the things he had created, and said it was all very good. It was perfect. And this brings us to our third biblical principle, biblical principle number three. God's original creation was perfect in every way, reminding us that His plans for us are always for our best. God's original creation was perfect in every way, reminding us that His plans for us are always for our best. When we look at the perfection of God's creation before the fall and realize and recognize how everything in nature works perfectly, intricately, and down to the minute details, even if we don't fully understand how it all works, it reminds us just how perfect God's plan for us is, as long as we don't mess it up. We may not know how everything works in our life and fully understand all that is going on in our lives, but we can be fully assured that God's unseen hand of care is based on His love for us, desiring the best for us, whether it comes in the form of the trials we undergo or the challenges that come into our lives. I'm reminded of those lyrics in the song Blessings by Laura Story, where she writes, "'Cause what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears?' What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in the skies? What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? What if the trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in the skies? My friends, God's sovereign plans for us are always for our best, which is what Romans chapter 8, verse 28 also reminds us. And when we remember the perfection of creation, we remember that God does not make mistakes. God has made the universe and everything in it perfectly good for the blessing of mankind for each one of us. And that doesn't change even if we mess it up. Even with the fall and sin entering the world, God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf to save us so that we can once again enjoy His blessings and to live in a perfect future world and enjoy the new heaven and the new earth as He so intended for us to live in without sin and its terrible effects. Remember, God's original creation was perfect in every way, reminding us that His plans for us are always for our best. Finally, look with me at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth, and all the hosts of them were finished, And on the seventh day, God ended His work, which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work, which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it, He rested from all His work, which God had created and made. By the end of the sixth day, the Bible tells us, God ceased His work of creation. No new species, no new creatures, no new animals or celestial structures or forms were created. This was the end of God's creative work in starting life and creating the universe. The Bible tells us on the seventh day He rested. It wasn't that God was somehow tired from His six days of creation. Just one word from His mouth, and there was light. This seventh day where God rested from the completion of His creation was to serve as a day to rest and to look back and enjoy all that had been created. Now, there was no prohibition that Adam or anyone could not work on the seventh day. That comes later in the Mosaic Law for the people of Israel. But this taking of rest on the seventh day was a reminder for us to follow the example of the Lord God to also take time out to rest and to take time to simply stop and think and enjoy God and all that He has created and bestowed upon mankind. This is a special day and a time set apart by God. My friends, this is a great reminder for us in our busy lives today that we all need to set aside time to simply stop, And to smell the roses. We are panicked, hectic, and stressed in our lives because we have not taken the time to stop, look around, and to praise God for all that He has created. Because when we do that, we remember some amazing principles of what creation teaches us. That number one, as creator of the universe, God defines how the world operates, including what is right and what is normal. Number two, God evidences His love and care for us in the creation of a world that is, for the good of mankind. And number three, God's original creation was perfect in every way, reminding us that His plans for us are always for our best. My friends, in these unique and challenging times, let's all take time to stop and enjoy God's wonderful creation, remembering to give Him glory and praise and being reminded that His creation declares that He is in control and He knows what He's doing, even if we do not. Let's be reminded of His care and love for us as we enjoy His blessings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for revealing through Your Word how You created so wonderfully this world and how You created this world so that You could bless us. Father, even though we mess everything up, still You desire for us to enjoy Your perfect creation. You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf so that we will be able to enjoy the perfection of Your new creation, the new heaven and new earth. So in the meantime, help us to look forward to that time and keeping our minds heavenward. Help us to think about the beauty of your creation and remembering the God who created all things. You are a good and loving God. And what a wonderful peace of mind and encouragement it brings in these challenging and unique times. Father, we love you and we thank you for blessing us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.